0: Welcome to the Karl Bart podcast. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. John Coots. Dr. Coots is an assistant professor of Christian theology at Ambrose University and is the author of A Shared Mercy, Carl Bart on Forgiveness in the Church. Dr. Coots, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, good to be with you. Yeah, my pleasure. It's always great to connect with um, another Liverpool van.
1: <laughs> I see the flag behind you. That's right I wish your viewers your listeners could see my little kit here but <laughs> for sure um,
0: well let's get the important stuff out of the way um, and then we can jump into BART but how did that start for you how did you get into Liverpool
1: oh um, I think my first year of college I traded shirts out of like a dorm t-shirt exchange uh, clothing exchange and I ended up with a Liverpool shirt and so then they became my my team it's not <laughs> that's it wow that's all she wrote That's great. That's like 30 years ago now so it runs deep by now but at the time it was pretty flippant. Yeah yeah it's funny how those things happen.
0: Um, How did you get into BART? How did that start? Um,
1: I didn't really run across BART when I was doing my undergrad degree preparing for the pastorate. Um, So I was spent a few years as a pastor and then I I kind of, it was sort of the peak of the church growth movement and I didn't really know what I was doing as a pastor. I thought I did I had a pretty good education, but I was just totally lost during that time. So I decided to go back and to seminary and figure out uh, what church was about and therefore what I was about as a pastor. And I went to, when I got to seminary, then I encountered BART. It was actually not in class. It was a BART reading group that uh, Dr. David Gretzky started in the early mornings and. a coffee shop in this tiny little village where my seminary was. And so I went to these 6am Friday morning BART conversations. And we read um, volume one of, or sorry, volume 2.1, uh, the, the doctrine of God, where he gets into the ele- doctrine of election. And I so just went and we read like six or seven pages at a time. And I hated it at first. I did not, I was not impressed because I thought all right, let's think about this um, doctrine of election and figure out, you know, the answers to the big questions, like who's saved and who's not. And Bart just kept, felt to me like Bart just kept on deferring the question till like next time. And I just got, uh, I was also like sort of doing the deconstruction of my faith at the time. So I was just even more upset with him for just for what I thought was deferring the question, but it turned out, you know, he had something going on and it took me probably like three or four months to realize oh, that's what he's doing here. I am interested in this. And then by then I'd also got swept up in his, I guess, verbosity or his rhetoric and just sort of the waves of, of Christology that were coming at me. And, um, probably after six months or so I was pretty sold on wanting to read more BART. Um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't get to do much more BART reading until, um, going on doing a PhD, um, trying to think about what would I study if I wanted to, to do a PhD and uh, thought, well, I'd like a chance to read more BART, especially on the question of forgiveness, which is the thing I really wanted to look into. So from the discovery of BART led to kind of a, I guess, an obsession, at least long enough of an obsession to do a PhD on him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely have to be
0: obsessed. Yeah. Um, so why, I guess, how did the topic of forgiveness in BART's
1: yeah I've already sorry yeah I already alluded to it a bit but I was just really wrestling with like what is a church about and like how would I make sense of my place in the church particularly as it related to the gospel I just felt like I was watching and sick of like a very individualistic approach to like spirituality and Christian life and I felt that no more than like no more poignantly at the place of like forgiveness like we talked about forgiveness all the time and I didn't see how it like um, cashed out in in kind of interpersonal relationships and even just the politics of church life Hmm. and I really just wanted to explore this I'd taken a great class at seminary that kind of got me into thinking there could be something to that and then reading Bart, I thought well he might have something really interesting to say on that so uh, I, I really had this I'm I was one of the few people that came into the PhD process with a really formed question it was really like palpable for me like what difference does forgiveness make to the church if, and anyone you talk to, like, oh, I, you know, I felt like I should have an answer to that. But the more you talk, the more you realize you don't have an answer to that. And that's how I felt, at least. And so I really wanted to study just that question. And it was, I was fortunate enough not to have to change my thesis question at all, because um, John Webster, um, you know, was, was happy to explore that with me and thought it was a fine question from day one. And, and uh, so it was kind of a thrill to get to study that with him and then end up with a dissertation that ended up with this book. Wow, well, that's great. Uh, well,
0: let's jump into the book a little bit. Um, sure. I guess before we start and get into uh, the crux of uh, forgiveness, I guess, um, you start kind of at the beginning, you have this brief section of your book called uh, Karl Barth on Christian life and community. Um, and you write about his ethics and ecclesiology. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting in this section was that uh, you write that Barth writes that... The Tempting Serpent had in mind the establishment of ethics, that that was like one of the goals of the serpent. Um, What does Bart mean by that?
1: Uh, Well, partly I think he's, it's a bit of rhetorical flourish and it works because it's a fantastic statement. Um, It really grabbed onto me, uh, my attention. Um, What he means, I think uh, it holds up. I, I sort of stand by it. I say that to my I, I quote that to my um, first year theology undergrads as well. I think what he's saying is that in that, in that um, story in Genesis chapter 2, when you know, we have the original sin, we have to think about what is the nature of that sin. And I think Bart's kind of take on it is that the sin, if it's like sort of boiled down to its essential ingredient, the sin is to refuse the obedience, as a way of life, you know, walking with garden, God in the garden in the cool of the day, you know, that's sort of metaphor for what life was supposed to be like for those that were called to, to be human uh, in God's image. Um, and they were given the opportunity to sort of like opt out of that way of being human. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the way of opting out. And that really is a mode of life in which we like figure we can, f- we can figure it out on our own. And, um, Bart's being a little bit tongue in cheek there, but he's not necessarily wrong. Like if, if ethics is us trying to figure out the moral life apart, not only apart from God, but also apart from like obedience to God as the centering sort of motive for that life, then we are just committing the original sin again Mm -hmm. and again and again. So like a godless, a godless morality is, if that's what ethics is, then that's what the serpent wanted. So tongue-in-cheek, but also maybe um, close to the bone, Yeah, I'd say.
0: Yeah, that uh, it seems very much like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, it, I mean, obviously, there are really close parallels. I think Bonhoeffer says that almost like the exact same thing in Christ's reality and the good, mm-hmm. where if the question of Christian ethics is what is the good, but we're not supposed to know that. Um, we weren't supposed to have the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, we were supposed to only know God. So the question mm-hmm. is... Uh, now is not the Christian ethics is what he says is not what is the good but what is the will of God yep. um, I, I don't know the timeline here is that something that Bonhoeffer gets from Bart or Bart gets from Bonhoeffer or they both get from somewhere else do you know
1: I've lost track of what the answer to that question is um, it's a good question I don't I don't know that anyone's actually pinned down like who originated that it may oh. be that it predates them both i uh, can't remember offhand but it's uncanny how how much that line sort of resonates between the two i think bonhoeffer says it in creation and fall yeah so he's saying it in his creation lectures um where i first read it is is in bart's fourth volume where and that's after that but i'm sure bart was saying stuff like that and maybe there's notions of that even in romer brief so i, I don't know who said it first between the two of them oh good um
0: What I was thinking about with Bonhoeffer though, is Bonhoeffer seems to have, uh, so the idea there is that we have to, we ask the question again and again, what is the will of God? Instead of asking, going by our own knowledge of good and evil. And he sort of has the, these kind of guardrails because I mean, you can think about it really easily to say, all right, just go and find out what is the will of God and do that. And then you can have many people throughout history who do some awful things in the name of the will of God. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I find it interesting that Bonhoeffer seems to have these sort of uh, guardrails, these like safeguards in place, Mm -hmm. uh, like the mandates or the terms like vicarious representative action, where um, it it sort of says like, um, always look to Jesus and do the will of God. um, Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't look like vicarious representative action or work within the mandates, then you're doing it wrong. You're just following your own will. Does BART have any sort of guardrails or safeguards like this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that he'd call them that, but um, I don't know the Bonhoeffer does either, but yeah, I know what you mean. Sure. I think they'd call them provisions, mm-hmm. you know, provisional sort of means of of helping us to hear the will of God, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I think the way they're thinking of it um, mm-hmm. is saying they as if they're thinking together about this, but they're very much similar to this. But I'll stay with BART since this is the mm-hmm. BART podcast. so. Sure gets accused of like command ethics which is like oh god says jump and you say how high and sure and we think of that nowadays in a very sort of individualistic sense like i get up in the morning morning uh have my devotion god tells me to do stuff when i go and do it and if people have a problem with that they can take it up with god and that's like that's ridiculous right um frankly um and so it's a, if the critique lands, it's it, it lands pretty hard. I don't think Bart thinks that. I don't think Bonhoeffer thinks that. That's what it means. Um, one of the ways that you can detect that is that I think that's when, sometimes they rail against sort of pietists of their time, and I think that that's one of the things they're railing against is this sort of pietistic mode, individually pietistic mode, where you can get really excited about something God's telling you, and that's the word of God, and that that trumps ethics. You know, to go back to this. But I don't think that's at all what they mean. And guardrails is maybe not strong enough of a word because I think for Bart and Bonhoeffer, I think both of them are running with this kind of assumption that there's a certain kind of like economy of God's speaking, God's will into our lives that involves um, the whole apparatus of like church discussion and like both on a local and like a grand ecumenical scale so that if, if you know, of God, you know obeying, obeying the voice, obeying the will of God is the key to the Christian life. But that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It certainly doesn't happen um, individualistically. Um, it, it certainly will happen in the heart and mind and the soul of the, the, contempl, con, the contemplative life. But it doesn't happen just there. And it's not like the, the word that you get from God in the contemplative life, like, trumps all other aspects of the economy of God's um, revealing God's self. And so if you want to call them guardrails, they're provisions. They're like parts of the economy of hearing God. Like mm-hmm. the way that that works is that you hear God um, with the people of God as you um, read scripture in your time. And that means in conversation with the questions and the answers of your of your time. And so it's not at all like a command ethic. If we think of command ethic in the sense of like, I hear it and I, I just do it. Mm-hmm. Um so depending on what it is, I think um, it could be very much like I open my Bible in the morning and I, I feel like God's directing me in a certain way and I don't really consult with people. That could be on the little things of life. or um, But on big things, you know, Bonhoeffer is a great example of this. He's really convicted about, you know, what to do with the confessing church situation and whether to get involved in the, in the Abbeer conspiracy. He doesn't want to do any of these things apart from consultation with who he considers to be his church. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think Bart's very much the same way. He just thinks there's a whole economy of hearing God's voice. Now, the problem is, you know, who is the church in our time? It's even worse now than it was 100 years ago. But like, is there an ecumenical apparatus by which we can seek the voice of God for our time? Well, no, we're fragmented uh, as 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 we could be. Um, But it does like you. But you do listen to God and the will of God in your local church. Mm. Right? And you, you can't really do it apart from that. So are there guardrails to that? Well, s- Scripture is your guide, not a guardrail. But how do you read Scripture faithfully? Well, the provisions around you act as guardrails or even better as like um, train tracks you yeah. know, or, or pathway paths. That's how you sort of figure out where to go. Um, but it's not like it's preset like in pavement. You know, it, God could guide communities and people in those communities. Um, differently over time, and so it is sort of open ended, and maybe more open ended than people would like. Um, but you know, God gets to do what God wants to do, right?
0: That's great. Thank you. That helped. I don't know. That was a bit. Of a no, that's number. really helpful. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the other part of that section that I found interesting, that uh, kind of will lead us to the main questions in the book, is so you write that Bart indicates that God with us is not a state but an event um so i'm wondering what is the difference uh again what where do those differences lead to um so a church who has uh sees god with us as a state or a church as god with us as an event Mm
1: -hmm. um i mean another better guest might take you into the metaphysics of all act and being here i'm not really one of those uh guys, I, I, I rely on the work of others to talk about being an act and, you know, actualism and all this stuff. So, but there are good like foundations in Bart's theology for like the ontology and and, and um, the event status of God there. But like what I'm thinking about there is just like the way that we encounter God and the way that God encounters us. It's It's always in time. And for Bart, it's not like this even though the, 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 the center of the Christ event, of course, the, um, you know, the birth, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and all the things that happened in between those events is in our past, but it's not like this known quantity in our past that for us is just like a static thing that comes to us through history um, as a sort of settled matter, I suppose, Mm -hmm. um, both in terms of understanding it and in terms of its meaning for our lives. It's, if the Christ event like explodes out sort of backwards in time and forwards in time from um, the birth, life, death, resurrection event of Jesus and, and through the ascension and the of the spirit, that's like still a live event. Hmm. And Jesus isn't done. I know we do the whole it is finished thing and like, you know, he's accomplished certain things that can't be, that don't need to be reaccomplished on the cross. But like the reconciling of the cosmos to God's self is not finished, at least in terms of our history and our experience of it. So we meet Jesus as an ongoing event. And for us to like assume that's like a settled matter in the terms of both of its like actualization in history and as like in terms of our understanding of it is actually, I think for Bart a means of us going back and committing that original sin again, actually. Cause it's like, <laughs> oh, the Christ, whatever Christ is, is a meaning I can put in my back pocket and like move on with. Well, no, that's like that's precisely the thing that Bart thinks is like the ethical. The sin of the Garden of Eden. No, like if you are a Christian, you're going to you're going to take part in the Christ event as as you participate with the church in um, seeking the reconciliation of the cosmos to God's self in Christ. As a, like a, a live, <laughs> it's a live and ongoing thing that we get to take part in. It's settled. A, a phrase I use probably way too much in the book is it's it's like once and for all, but ongoing. And so. Um, yeah, not, not just a state, it's an event, an ongoing event in in time, you know, that Jesus is the Lord of, even as, because he's the conqueror, because he's won the victory. And so I think that opens up, like, a way of looking at church and Christian life that is maybe uncomfortably open, um, but th- it's not open, like, without a, without a sure beginning. It's not open without, like, without an anchor, but it's op- more, maybe more open than some people would like. But if you're going to go with Bart, you've got to go with him on this, like, <laughs> Um, you're just not going to be convinced by Bart at all if, uh, if you want to refuse this. So I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, or? no, that's great.
0: And it seems I, I'm, I'm so new to Bart. Um, but I'm feel like I have a pretty f- firm grasp on, on Bonhoeffer. At least I'm working on that. Um, so it's the, the notion of just continual dependence mm. again and again, it, the, your statement about putting it in your back pocket and just going on with your life is like just seeing what what the Christian life would look like there as opposed to one of uh ongoing recognition of kind of what is being accomplished currently in mm-hmm. us and, mm-hmm. and in the world. Um that's great. Um I mean obviously your book is uh mainly about forgiveness in church dogmatics volume four. Um instead of having you I, I haven't read volume four. I'm currently making my way through Rumor Brief right now uh, mm-hmm. and so starting kind of at the beginning and we'll get there eventually. And obviously there's so much to get to between <laughs> then and now. So uh, I appreciated the preview in your book. You have this excellent um, chart that kind of lays out the outline of uh First Automatic's volume four, um, kind of the the rhythm of um, how Bart <laughs> goes one place. And then he, he, he follows the logical conclusions. And then he comes back to the original point and expands it a bit and follows those conclusions mm-hmm. um instead of having you walk through every section of <laughs> volume 4 cuz that just for time's sake and yeah. obviously uh, be a little monotonous um i'm wondering if you could help just give it like a 10,000 foot overview of barts thoughts on transdynamics for specifically pertaining to forgiveness um mm-hmm. so uh i guess you have this section and i'll just start with that question and in that section and the the section is entitled who forgives and why Mm. um so in church dogmatics volume four who forgives and why
1: yeah well I'll, i'll see if i can tie it all around that statement um my mastery of my own material is maybe not good enough that i can make this uh that 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 connection as cleanly as i'd like but let's start with the sort of outline of of church dogmatics four so obviously bart is coming out of doctrine of the word of god volume one doctrine of god volume two and doctrine of creation volume three as um dr teats said in your your first episode really well she summarized all that so now she's he's coming to the doctrine of reconciliation which is like now we're going to talk about soteriology basically right Mm. but on a grander scale than just the question of like, how do I get saved? It's like the reconciliation of all things. And so what he does is super interesting and it it allows him to go on for thousands and thousands of pages is that rather than like do it once, he's going to take three passes at it. Right. And he takes three passes according to the sort of classic uh, or at least reformed categories of of Jesus uh, as prophet, priest, and King. Right. Mm -hmm. And within each of those three passes at it, which end up being the three part volumes or at least the finished ones, he's going to take it in a certain order and then he's going to restart at the beginning. Right. So each one, he's going to go, well, we're going to start as we always do in the Barthian church dogmatics. We're going to start with Christology. So everything we say about God is going to go through um, God's revelation of God's self in Christ. And then we're, this is a cool move that I really, maybe others did it before him, but um, I had never seen it before. We can't talk about sin until we've seen what humanity is in light of Christ. Um, We might come back to that. when We talk about forgiveness. So we're going to talk about the doctrine of sin after we talk about Christ. And then we can finally talk about what it means to be saved. So soteriology. And then he's going to catch that in terms of like what I've called ecclesiology and spirituality, or you might say church and like ethics or the Christian life. Mm -hmm. Then he'll go back to the beginning and do it again. He does it first with priesthood, second with um, the royal office of Christ, and then third with the prophetic office. And there's a bunch of interesting stuff he's able to do by focusing on an on office at a time that we probably won't go into here. But the one that I find really, I found really, really, uh, uh, again, it was new to me and um, super uh, interesting, but also like productive for my own work is that in volume three, in the prophetic office of Christ, he's, he's basically saying that part of the doctrine of salvation is the doctrine of vocation. Like you don't get saved without then also being called receiving a calling from God to participate in some way in the ongoing salvation of you know well the entire cosmos right and so these things that it used to be really disconnected in my theology were like part and parcel of one another Um, you, you just don't get saved without becoming part of the salvation of others and even of your own salvation so it becomes very participatory so then by the time in each of these part volumes you come to the ecclesiology and and what I call a spirituality sections it's really a lot of people and I agree more or less feel like you're left wanting more because it doesn't get super specific like it doesn't lay down really concrete guardrails as we called them earlier for like so how do you do this like because he really doesn't want to reduce everything to like principles and that's where I've, I've kind of turned to Bonhoeffer to sort of cash out uh, church and Christian life a little bit more solidly but he does give like really good, um, he describes the shape of the Christian life in these terms, I think, really well in mm-hmm. those. And I think you'll find those rewarding if you ever get from *Rover brief to all the way to volume <laughs> four. Um, you want to skip a few things to get there because yeah. it's just really, really helpful. Some of the best ecclesiology I ever read was um, probably uh, the third part volume when he really just kind of comes to the end. Mm. So that's like the 10,000 foot. That's great overview, I suppose. And if I wanted to tie it into forgiveness, and maybe you have some follow-ups where you want to take it there, I'd say like that move where he says, "It's in Christ that we learn to be human, um, and it's from Christ that we learn what our sins are." That sort of put forgiveness in a new light because who forgives and why? Well, even when we're talking about us forgiving each other as persons, um, who am I to forgive something? Like forgiveness is God's to do. And, and, and why would God forgive anything or give us the right or the ability to forgive anything? Well, it would be on the basis of God's reconciliation of all things in Christ. That would be like the justice on which forgiveness hangs. Otherwise, forgiveness is like a made up thing that has no basis, right? So who forgives and why? Well, God does because of Christ, yeah. right? Which is like such a Sunday school answer, but hopefully, <laughs> as, hopefully uh, it's as complicated as I've made it. <laughs> <In> the book <laughs> well that's
0: great uh yeah you mentioned um about how like you hadn't seen anyone do that before the, the move from uh for, let's start with christology first and then go into uh sin yeah i i found that when i was i looked at your chart i was like whoa he's starting here because i think of i mean maybe it's just like my church and background my biblical studies undergrad like, i think of like when i think of doing theology my first thought comes to sort of like the storyline of the bible like that you know i think i had this really kitschy phrase that i heard one time at a church that stuck in my head from like 10 years and it, it was something like, like god provides sin divides christ died you decide like obviously like the most kitschy evangelical sunday school answer um, but like things like that come into my mind where I think of, all right, well, I'm going to describe um, let's say any, any doctrine. Uh, and then I think through the filters of, okay, like, what does it mean? Uh, pre-fall? What does it mean after the fall? What does it mean when Jesus comes to address it? Um, and then what does it mean in the end? Um, so I was really, I was surprised to see this sort of system laid out and, in that graph, that it starts first with Christ and yeah. then goes to sin. I mean, it, obviously, everything I've been told about Bart it sounds very Bartian. To, 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 we're just going to start with Jesus and take it from there. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems much more like, um, instead of starting at the beginning uh, of the the narrative, I guess you start with who is Jesus, and then if if Jesus, then and then take that out to basically every other doctrine. Is that right. is that like pretty regular
1: thing and oh it is for him yeah Yeah. i mean like you i I mean i don't think i don't know if bart like came up with this i mean he himself is getting it from you know the church fathers and and stuff but he's articulating something that maybe for his time needed to be re-articulated and for me it was the first time i'd read it because of my background and sounds like a similar background to yours i just never heard for me it was like you already know you're bad you need jesus to save you right but like that's such a horrible first move because we don't know how we're bad We know we're bad maybe and bart does this thing where he's like even when he's talking about the doctrine of sin he does this thing where he's like okay the whole world knows they're in misery but they don't know how to diagnose the misery right and so it's one thing to to look at the effects or the symptoms of this horrible thing called sin but like to actually diagnose what sin is both on like the grand scale but also like in the minutia of our lives together we we're um it's actually now that i realize this it feels like foolhardy to have thought this but like we sort of grow up in evangelicalism thinking well we can diagnose our sins ourselves and then we can go to jesus to fix them But it's like how do we know what our sins are like even a um a run-of-the-mill argument with someone on my soccer team or with my wife or my kids we all assume we know who was the sinner in the situation and who wasn't and you know sometimes we're right but um Bart like, why do you assume you know what the sin is all the time, you know, and, and it's like, if Jesus is the reconciliation of not only of God, but of humanity to us, then maybe we should start there, you know, not only in the grand scheme of things, but also in the minutiae of life. And so starting there in the minutiae of life actually comes to mean, well, let's seek the will of God. Let's let, let's, uh, if we think there's a problem between us or if there's a sin has been committed, let's ask Jesus to. Uh, to show us what the sin is rather than the presuming we know what it is. Sorry, I've got off a bit there, but like that oh, that's great. to me is like the, the sort of ripple effect of that decision. Like it's theological decision has like, if you allow the ripples to sort of play out, it actually hits the minutia of your life, you know? Hmm. So what, uh, if, if we take that route, we say,
0: yeah. uh, it, start with Jesus. And then Jesus tells us about our sin and we can't really find it on our own very well ever. if at all um what does that tell us about salvation um if if you're going to follow those that logical train of thought from
1: bart uh yeah um i don't depends what you mean i I don't quite know what the hard edge of the question is but i mean it, it, it was one thing for me to be like saved that we're born again in evangelical terrain um but then the next question is like, what kind of life comes after that? And it's, yeah. and um, it's a life of now you seek God repentantly, um, not just once and for all, but in an ongoing way, like I said earlier. And that, yeah. that sort of plays out in a way that's not disconnected from your saving, but I don't know, is there a, a point, a more pointed edge to your No, question?
0: that's perfect. I was just sort of trying to follow still a little bit from the 10,000 foot view of yeah. Christ's sin salvation and then into spirituality and ecclesiology what does uh ongoing repentance look like and how is it like how does that idea of salvation lead into ecclesiology and spirituality i guess
1: yeah i mean for me so again some of this is just the chronology of coming to this this isn't necessarily original to bard i mean like it would predate the reformation to this idea that the christian life is 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 repentance all the way down but like luther certainly says that (laughs) in the 95 theses is the first thesis right and so you know at that point in history there had to be like someone had to lay the smack down but um so it's not like original but for me it was like oh this is like my first real encounter with like playing this out theologically and i'll tell you it did huge things for my perspective on whether i could even pastor a church again which i did end up going on doing Because my, my view of what we were trying to do as a church shifted from basically, we're just always feeling like we're not quite living up to our goals. And thank God he forgives us for that. But like, you know, preferably we'd be meeting our goals. Uh, No, like the whole point we're getting together is to just repent all the time, Hmm. you know, and repentant means trying to do better the next time, but like the actual fabric or uh, heartbeat or whatever metaphor you want to use of our life together is getting together to renew our vows, so to speak, to, uh, but not just in a, a symbolic way, but in an, a very real way to live penitently from, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, the live Lordship of, of Jesus Christ together. Um, and so then sins and mistakes and, and failed uh, goals still hurt they're still problematic, but they don't derail you from the Christian life, you know, because the Christian life's ready for that. The Christian life's set up for your failure. It's, it's ready for you. And I took so much comfort in just being like, oh, that's what a pastor does. It's like, just own it. You know, that's, that's the Christian life is that we, we confess our sins and repent together and, and see what, what comes of it. And maybe that shouldn't have been such a paradigm shift, but it certainly was for me as a Pastor trained in the 90s and kind of launched out into the world. And I I think it's still, at least in the churches I run in, I think it's still a bit of a paradigm shift.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to shift gears
0: here a little bit. And you've definitely given a little bit of practical application already. Um, But you have an entire section of your book on these sort of practical implications about forgiveness. Um, So I, I wanted to get into those a little bit. So I guess I'll just start with how does forgiveness relate to the past and its residual effects? So if uh, someone is harmed uh, and ongoing residual effects, it's hard to hard to shake, hard to hard to forgive. Um, how, how does this view of forgiveness
1: play into that? Um. Well, a lot of the, the ways I talk about this now, I've drifted from using Bart's language for it, but like most of this, I. Like, I feel like I discovered reading Bart, um, but it was just this realization that forgiveness doesn't make it go away,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And so, just like the Christ event, kind of rolls with history. So Jesus has accomplished certain things in the cross and resurrection, but then continues to work with us in the up and down and crises of our history, and that has like a cumulative effect. And Jesus doesn't ever be like, "Okay, we're going to start over this millennium. Let's just pretend that all didn't happen." Like same within our, our lives it's just like it's not it's not like a do-over or an amnesty or and it's certainly not the like um magic you can forget everything now thing that they press in that that movie that i can't remember the name men in black it. yeah men in black that's the one <laughs> um but you know again some of my church upbringing led me to think that that's kind of what forgiveness was it was just like oh let's clear the slate it's like when you uh yeah, you you take the blackboard and wash it away. Like, no, the past hangs on, the the residual effects hang on. And and Bart was uh, expounding this theologically in the theological register, you know, probably 50, 60 years before it was, it was really coming out in the psychological and the sociological register. And now you've got trauma theology and stuff like where it's just like, no, we're palpably aware that one of the worst things you can do to your sins and traumas is like pretend they didn't happen. Sweep them Mm -hmm. under the rug, these metaphors, right? And um, so forgiveness is not this like forgetting or this like um, past erasure. Um, the question quickly becomes, well, then what is it? But um, it certainly doesn't have this relationship to the past that just makes it go away, right? Hmm. Uh, we have language in the Old Testament Go, God not remembering our sins anymore and, and uh, maybe putting our sins as far as the East is from the West. We have to play with those metaphors a bit, but they certainly, I mean, if you think about it, You know for god not to remember our sins anymore that can't actually literally mean god just deciding not to know of them anymore like they just don't have a place in god's knowledge that's it's actually Mm -hmm. doesn't hold up right so you think these things through well forgiveness must be something that actually carries on with whatever residuals of our sin there are Mm -hmm. in a meaningful way yeah that's great uh you,
0: you alluded to it there um, about what exactly is forgiveness. I guess in my experience, I have um, some people in my life, myself included, um, that I guess have a broad range of their ability to forgive. Like some people, it just seems really easy to just like, you know, rolls off the shoulder, you know, no big deal. And some people hold on to small things and some people hold on to big things. And um, I guess uh, it is it a skill is forgiveness a skill or is it something else like what exactly is it
1: I, yeah that's what i mean i still think about that i mean for bart i don't I, bart's gonna say no it is not a skill yeah. nobody can be good at this as soon as you get good at it you're bad at it right and that's like the christian life right down all the way down <laughs> um which creates problems for virtue ethics and stuff but we maybe won't go there but um for me it's like okay let's say some of us are maybe more forgiving by nature um, Canadians, for example, <laughs> you know, like we're all, we're, not only do we always say sorry, but the Canadian reply is it's okay. But well, what are we actually doing there? Well, it's a minor social faux pas, followed up with some sort of like, yeah, it goes with the territory. We're only human kind of, we excuse a lot of things and that can become so natural to us, but also in a bigger, like a more significant way than that example, we actually are sort of trained by our social environment. We have, it's like a social construct almost to avoid conflict at all cost. Yes. And so those of us who might say, who might feel like we're naturally prone to forgive the shadow side of that is actually just might be that we're really conflict avoidant or mm-hmm. that we've learned that we are at the bottom of the sort of pecking order in whatever sort of social structure we're in and that we're not, we, we better really, really mean it if we're going to stick our nose above the parapet. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people always said to me when I was a young early on pastors like you got to choose which hills to die on and frankly when you're just starting out you don't get any right because you've got to earn the capital to be able to confront anything and uh the more i studied bart the more i thought well that is just a sick and twisted way of looking at the christian life because basically it's like play the power games of the world you know what i mean um and also reward people that are really conflict avoidant and say oh you're just such a forgiving person you know and um the peace of the church really depends on people like you, but you know, you know, they're carrying it on their back, right. They're swallowing Mm -hmm. stuff that they should be confronting possibly. So um, it's not to say that you couldn't be sort of skilled or become skilled at like having a reflex. that was like trained in the ways of forgiveness and reconciliation. I wouldn't want to rule that out. Although Bart would maybe push that far. It is to say, I would question anyone who like, things that are just naturally good or bad at it, frankly, mm-hmm. because it is something more um, live, I guess, than, um, than being able to, you couldn't really rely upon a skill because as soon as you start relying on a skill of forgiveness, you confront a situation in which you need something more than just the habits or patterns you brought into it. In fact, those habits or patterns could be the problem, mm-hmm. right? If, you, if you're in a conflict-avoiding church where it's nothing but false peace all the way down. Um, forgiving in that environment might actually um, take the form of saying we're just not going to do this anymore Mm -hmm. we're going to confront this situation in a a forgiving way and that leads again to the question well then what is forgiveness right Mm
0: -hmm. yeah that help Um, i don't know is that what you're asking no that's great that's great um i I also wanted to touch on uh i guess the interpersonal forgiveness being unconditional Mm -hmm. um I, i you mentioned it earlier this um, as far as the East is from the West and yeah. things like that. Um, and then you think about okay, how, how am I supposed to do this? Um, how, how does that work with, um, like, is forgiveness unconditional between person to person? How does that, yeah. How is that supposed
1: to work? Yeah. I mean, it's a nice line to say forgiveness, like love is unconditional. And I think we know what we mean by that. Yeah. It means like you can't do anything to earn it because it's a gift. in the the sense of unearned way and you also can't do anything to lose it and so those are those those preach you know but if you think about it a little bit more it actually is sort of nonsensical because all anytime forgiveness is going to manifest itself in a relationship it's going to be conditioned by the social environment it's going to be conditioned by the history of the relationship it's going to be conditioned by the language used to communicate it Mm -hmm. and i don't don't just mean conditioned in like uh uh, a non-formal way, but the, but the not only the expression of it, but the actuality of the forgiveness will have to take place within certain conditions. In other, but cash it out theologically, forgiveness is always connected to um, other acts yeah. that you know follow on from it, or come before it, or even which take place along with it, even in the communicating of it. And that's, that's just like a sociological observation, but also a theological observation, because theologically, if forgiveness is like rooted in, um, or has its telos in, God's reconciliation of all things in Christ, then the only basis for any forgiving is forgiving is reconciliation. And so forgiving is like offering an open door or, or uh, laying out a pathway. Um, you know, choose your metaphor for saying, look, I'd like us to be reconciled. Um, it's unconditional in the sense that we're doing this forgiving thing, whether or not we succeed at the reconciling thing. So that's where the slogan sort of makes sense. Hmm. But it loses all sense whatsoever, at least in a Christian way, if it's totally divorced from any questions of like of reconciling and all the things that are entailed, such as correcting the sin, um, re- seeking the repair or the restoration of the person that was hurt, um, confessing the actual wrong involved. These are all acts that go along with forgiveness um, without which I think forgiveness can still be a thing, but it like ceases to be much of a thing at all, if disconnected from any other acts. So Mm -hmm. to say it was unconditional, really, it doesn't take you very far, at least unpacking what it can mean Christianly, you know, that's
0: great. Thank you. Um, I wanted to get into a little bit more about, um, I guess the, your last chapter, um, kind of paints a picture of what this would look like to be put into practice. Um, so I guess I'll just ask you what, what does it look like for a church to model this well? And have you seen this uh, view of forgiveness and repentance modeled well, maybe in your church or even, I guess, in a classroom, since you're a professor? Um,
1: yeah. What does that look like? Um. Yeah. And not, not because they're learning it from me or Bart or someone else and then like applying it. I've never seen it like applied in a programmatic way. Although I probably could have sold more books if I like had, like a, uh, a shared mercy for teens, you know, seven step program. Um, then the cash would have flowed in, I guess. But, you know, that would have been the least Bartian thing I could have done with this. But, you know, joking aside, like I really tried to live this out in my pastorate in a kind of programmatic or at least intentionally preached kind of way and I don't know that I ever saw like me or Bart have an effect on anybody but I will say it helped us where I've been able to put words to it's helped me to put words to where I've seen Christians act like proper Christians and this goes all the way back to my childhood and my family and you know experiences in college and seminary and um, even outside the church you know and my soccer teams and stuff people either by instinct or um, through, you know, osmosis in the society, or just from reading their Bible, they actually manage to, to to forgive one another and and to not make it a false peace sort of conflict avoidance thing. Like it actually leads to, you know, repentance and the repairing of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Maybe more often it doesn't because we all kind of suck at life. But um <laughs> often like it's there that when people live by the gospel uh, you know or live in love with one another they actually do this stuff so i think for me it like i don't know that i've ever seen like it it pay off in a programmatic way but it's helped me say oh i can i can recognize a health a healthy sort of family dynamic or church dynamic or team dynamic where i see it and i can name it in theological terms where i see it and maybe help it lean into health so Mm -hmm you know, I've been in meetings where we, you know, we might be tempted to just sort of leave a big issue and just sort of move on and not deal with the stuff. But it's like, no, let's actually press into this sort of environment we've created where we can name and forgive one another. Let's actually press into the question. Now, what do we do to actually reconcile? And wherever you see people doing that, I think they're sort of on to, you know, not only the core of like bart's theology on this but like theology like the truth mm-hmm. of what the gospel opens up so yeah I, I see it um i think we could see it more if we really sort of moved on from an individualistic sort of like you were referring to the sort of the romans road sort of approach to salvation and, yeah. and everything after so i'd like the ch- church to do better but i think when people are i, I think we see it you know yeah
0: wow that's great um and so i got two fun questions for you and then then we'll wrap up the first one um and this is questions have been fun for me by the way already oh good (laughs) (laughs) well they're about to be more fun because this one is uh specifically for you i have not ever asked this on the podcast yet Um, favorite liverpool goal
1: under jurgen klopp oh um corner taken quickly origi oh yeah there you go (laughs) but also laverne's goal against dortmund uh there you go. People that know will know. Well, yeah, God, sure. <laughs> maybe I'll
0: just like put that out with the episode, the YouTube links. Just Google it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, that's all enough. right, uh, we'll get into to the desert island question now. Um, so the idea is you're trapped on a desert island. Um, you can take one book by Bart, um, and you can't say all of the church dogmatics. You you can take a volume if it is in a single book. You can take it. Uh, and we'll do a, a secondary source as well. So get one book by BART, one book about BART. What two books are you taking and why?
1: Yeah, I heard you ask Dr. Teets this on your first episode, so sort of ready for the secondary sources one, but I'm, not, I'm undecided on what BART I would take. I think now that I'm thinking it out loud, I would take the Natural Theology book with him and Bruner, even though it's really short um it sort of changed my life when i read it in seminary i didn't tell you about this but after i read the doctrine of election stuff i read his little debate with broner and it totally changed my view of like everything Hmm. um in fact it changed the direction of the master's thesis i was writing and i still don't know totally how to figure out bart's relationship to natural theology and what i want to do with it so if i was to go to a desert island i imagine i'd have a bunch of time to think about that And i'd love to revisit that book and and uh over that issue for a while and then for secondary sources it'd be tempting to just take something by a friend because it would you know i getting lonely on a desert island but um i think i'd rather read something new that i haven't had a chance to read yet huh. so i'd have to choose between sander um, book in 92 i think it was that jesus christ was born a jew so I haven't got around to reading that and i really should have by now and i would love to um or Susanna Tiziati's job and the disruption of identity uh reading beyond bart i've always wanted to read that because she's brilliant and um and that would be so fascinating so if i had to grab one i'd probably take the job one because i i think by now i've sort of heard uh people explain um book to me but i still don't know what i would find in Susanna titciotti's book so that's the one i would take and a book on Job would be helpful if you're trapped on a desert island Exactly. Good point. So yeah. that's the one. <laughs>
0: Some commiserations. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time um to, to do this. Um the book is A Shared Mercy, carl Bart on Forgiveness in the Church by John Coots. Um yeah, available through IVP Academic. Um that's right. you can find that on the website or Amazon or wherever um you find books. Um, but yeah, this has been great. and I, I yeah, I can't thank you enough and uh Hopefully, International Weekend will be over soon and we can get back to watching Liverpool win too. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carl Bart Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review in your podcast app. It will help others find the show. And if you have any feedback or questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is at Bart Podcast. That's all for me now. I'm excited to keep learning with you all. And I appreciate you listening. See you next month.